Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, in our January literary birthday salute, author and journalist Jack London, born January 12, 1876, one of the first U.S. writers to become an international celebrity, London's left-inspired works are infused with his working-class roots, but eventually embraced by the literary establishment did lead to ideological confusion in his potent writings. And presented here on the show is an excerpt from London's Winter Wilderness Tale to Build a Fire, with narration and music by Daniel Vimont. was alive like the dog, and like the dog it wanted to hide away and cover itself up from the fearful cold. So long as he walked four miles an hour, he pumped that blood willy-nilly to the surface. But now it ebbed away and sank down into the recesses of his body. The extremities were the first to feel its absence. His wet feet froze the faster, and his exposed fingers numbed the faster, though they had not yet begun to freeze. Nose and cheeks were already freezing, while the skin of all his body chilled as it lost its blood. But he was safe. Toes and nose and cheeks would be only touched by the frost, for the fire was beginning to burn with strength. He was feeding it with twigs the size of his finger. In another minute, he would be able to feed it with branches the size of his wrist, and then he could remove his wet footgear and while it dried, he could keep his naked feet warm by the fire, rubbing them at first, of course, with snow. The fire was a success. He was safe. He remembered the advice of the old-timer on Sulphur Creek and smiled. The old-timer had been very serious in laying down the law that no man must travel alone in the Klondike after fifty below. Well, here he was. He had had the accident. He was alone, and he had saved himself. Those old-timers were rather womanish, some of them, he thought. All a man had to do was keep his head, and he was all right. Any man who was a man could travel alone. But it was surprising, the rapidity with which his cheeks and nose were freezing, and he had not thought his fingers could go lifeless in so short a time. Lifeless they were for he could scarcely make them move together to grip a twig. And they seemed remote from his body and from him. When he touched a twig, he had to look and see whether or not he had hold of it. The wires were pretty well down between him and his finger ends. All of which counted for little. There was the fire, snapping and crackling and promising life with every dancing flame. He started to untie his moccasins. They were coated with ice. The thick German socks were like sheaths of iron halfway to the knees, and the moccasin strings were like rods of steel, all twisted and knotted as by some conflagration. For a moment, he tugged with his numbed fingers. Then, realizing the folly of it, he drew his sheath knife. But before he could cut the strings, it happened. It was his own fault, or rather his mistake. He should not have built the fire under the spruce tree. He should have built it in the open. But it had been easier to pull the twigs from the brush and drop them directly on the fire. Now the tree under which he had done this carried a weight of snow on its boughs. No wind had blown for weeks, and each bough was fully freighted. Each time he had pulled a twig, he had communicated a slight agitation to the tree an imperceptible agitation so far as he was concerned, but an agitation sufficient to bring about the disaster. High up in the tree, one bough capsized its load of snow. This fell on the boughs beneath, capsizing them. This process continued, spreading out and involving the whole tree. 
It grew like an avalanche, and it descended without warning upon the man and the fire. And the fire was blotted out. Where it had burned was a mantle of fresh and disordered snow. The man was shocked. It was as though he had just heard his own sentence of death. For a moment, he sat and stared at the spot where the fire had been. Then he grew very calm. Perhaps the old-timer on Sulphur Creek was right. If he had only had a trailmate, he would have been in no danger now. The trailmate could have built the fire. Well, it was up to him to build the fire over again and this second time there must be no failure. Even if he succeeded, he would most likely lose some toes. His feet must be badly frozen by now, and there would be some time before the second fire was ready. And to Build a Fire is a presentation of classic tales of hope and courage at classictales.net. And next up on Arts Express, comedy without Trump. What will the landscape of humor be like without him around in 2021? Here to ponder that question and more is our returning guest on Arts Express, Trevor Noah Daily Show senior correspondent Michael Costa. Quote, yeah, I think there is a belief that without Donald Trump, comedy will die. I look forward to someone who's a little more boring. Costa also dives into his latest Coast to Coast and In Between Comedy Central special, Detroit, New York, L.A., while addressing the question, is there a different sense of humor in different places across the country? Along with what's up with censorship in comedy lately, and what may post-pandemic comedy look like in the new year. But first, in a no-laughing-matter moment along his stand-up tour, Costa addresses the issue, U.S. gun culture, then Michael Costa. Comedy's tough. Comedy's tough in the U.S. Gender jokes are tough. Race is tough, you know. Politics is tough. What's the toughest topic? Guns. Guns are the hardest topic to do jokes about. Hear how quiet it is now that I even just said guns? Guns are tough. It's always tough to do jokes about guns. It's always too soon, isn't it? Isn't that sad? We love guns, man. I think it should be our greeting, you know? Instead of shaking hands, I think we should just... <laughs> Greetings take on the culture of its people. That's why in Japan, you bow. In France, you kiss on both cheeks. That's our culture. We own 50% of the world's guns. Oh, you're American? Nice to meet you. It's the second thing we wrote. It's the second thing we wrote. Out of all the things to write, when starting a country, the second thing they wrote down is you better get a gun. <laughs> the first thing they wrote down is you can say what you want, and then they were like, oh, but you better get a gun if you want to do that. <laughs> we wrote that before women's rights, slavery, health care. That's high. Two is high, everybody. Even Germany's number two wasn't arm every citizen with a deadly weapon. <laughs> and that's what gun lovers tell you. Many people probably in this room will tell you, look, man, Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. And they're right. That's what it says. My only criticism of that amendment is when it was written, arms were a little different, weren't they? In the late 1780s, <laughs> arms was a musket. It was 28 feet long. It took 12 minutes to reload it. 
You shot like a warped marble, you know? That even if I aimed at him, it would hit her in the shoulder. A mass shooting would take nine hours. Two shots fired, nobody injured or killed. What do those words mean? What do the words, the right to bear arms mean? Maybe we misinterpreted them. Maybe it's the right to show your arms, you know, huh? Sun's out, gun's out, that's where that comes from. People misinterpreted things all the time back then. I'm not anti-gun. I can feel some of you in the balcony putting your scopes on your rifles. I'm not anti-gun. I wanted to get a gun. I thought about it. And then I thought about how often I reach in my garbage disposal when it's turned on. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I don't need a deadly weapon flying around the house. I do that joke in New York and people go, he has a garbage disposal? It's just sad. Yesterday, there was a mass shooting. And I don't even know when this is gonna air, but that last sentence will remain relevant. Isn't that sad? Las Vegas is sad, El Paso, Parkland, Newtown, San Diego, I mean, Killeen, Texas, you can't even name them all. You can't even name them all, right? Orlando, we have a gun problem. Hate to break it to you. We have a gun problem, but we can't touch the Second Amendment. It's a tough problem to solve. Politicians are not gonna solve it, but maybe a comedian can. <laughs> I have three solutions to solve the United States gun problem. You guys wanna hear them? Here we go. First solution, you only get two guns. That's the max. You can have a short gun and you can have a long gun, okay? You can't have 586 guns. Second solution, women, you can have as many guns as you want, all right? Bazookas, armored helicopters, Uzis, swords that shoot bullets, whatever. No woman has killed more than two people in this country with a gun since 1980, okay? Fellas, if you wanna use a gun, you gotta find a woman, ask her, she's gonna say, what's it for? How long you gonna be gone? Who are you going with? What time can I expect you'll be back? Third solution. If you're a white man with a bad haircut, no guns for you, okay? Hi. Hi. Hi, Michael Costa. Hi, and welcome to our show. Hi, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Now, your political comedy covering the presidential election was pretty wild, and an election that apparently is still going on and not quite over yet, it seems. And there's such a wealth of bizarre material from there right now and it would seem like you don't even have to hunt it down. So what will you be talking about this election apparently still in progress? Yeah, I, I think there is a belief that without Donald Trump, comedy will die. <laughs> uh, I can, I can uh, proudly confirm that before Donald Trump, there was great comedy and there will be great comedy after Donald Trump. In some ways, um, he is such low-hanging fruit. Hmm. What he tweets is so bombastic and so ripe for any of the amateur comedian can discuss this. So I look forward, as someone who spent 15 years doing stand-up comedy, I look forward to someone who's a little more boring, and uh, <laughs> we, can mine com we can mine comedy from other places. What is your stand-up special all about, and what can audiences anticipate? Well, it is a stand-up comedy special, but one thing that's unique about this comedy special is I take you to three different locations. I want the viewer to experience the same comedy path that I took. So we start in Detroit, Michigan, where I'm from. We then move to New York City, where I went to next in my comedy. We then go to Los Angeles, where I went to next, and we finish back in Detroit. So in a strange time of quarantine where we aren't traveling much. If you watch this special, you'll be able to go to three different cities right from your couch. And is the material different for each city in any way? Yeah, you know, it, yes, it is. I mean, you're not going to hear the same joke twice, if that's what you're <laughs> asking. But I, I, I cater my material to the audience that I'm performing for. And that's one thing I wanted to showcase 
to viewers. The professional stand-up comics job is to know that the Detroit audience will be different than the New York audience, which will be different than the Los Angeles audience. That being said, the one similarity that they all have is a good joke will make you laugh. It doesn't matter where you live. And what are perhaps some of the differences you see in what each of those cities think is funny? Well, yeah, I mean, that's definitely challenging sometimes, you know, <laughs> to figure that out. I mean, I can tell you right now, it's, as a performer, just looking out into the audience, it just looks different. Detroit, uh, there's a lot of, you know, Michigan, Michigan State sweatshirts. There's a lot of baggy jeans. Then you go to New York. And everyone has a different look. Everyone has a different vibe. People are speaking different languages. And then you go to Los Angeles, and everyone's beautiful, but they're dumb. <laughs> and my job is to cater the show, still be myself, still share my point of view, but know that audience and, and, and ex execute a fun night for them. Now, your special has been described as nostalgic, pre-pandemic, and, quote, silly yet thought-provoking observations of a self-aware Midwesterner. Please elaborate And what exactly is a self-aware Midwesterner. Well, you're in, you're in uh, Long Island. Where are you, Long Island? New York City? New York City, No, right? I'm in New York City, yeah. Okay, great. So it might be hard to admit to a New Yorker. I'm in New York City as well right now. But growing up in the Midwest, there is this feeling... And, and probably an accurate belief that the Coastals are elite, that they believe they're elite. New Yorkers have a little bit of a vibe that, hey, we can handle anything. We're a little bit better than the rest of the country. And I experienced that here in New York, and I experienced some of that in Los Angeles as well. Hey, we're so far away from you. We make all of your entertainment. You don't tell us what to do. So I think one thing that the Midwest offers that is nice is, they have a very both feet on the ground, solid foundation, and and I will make fun of the coast, but I'm allowed to do that because by being self-aware of who I am first, I think, I hope, that you'll like me. And what are your thoughts about the censorship that has come about in the comedy world, and how has it affected you and what you will or won't say, or where you won't go with your comedy? That's a good question, and it isn't a question that I've had to evaluate too much. Um, I am not getting on stage uh, really, really, really dirty or really, really, really uh, irreverent, but I fully support any artist that wants to go anywhere they can. I am strongly against censorship um, in my special uh you know, I, I, I was raised to try to make people laugh without swearing, but I still swear, okay? Because that's how I actually talk with amongst my friends. And I will talk about the Second Amendment. I do talk about the Me Too movement in my special. And the rule is, and you don't always know this until it's too late, but the rule is as long as it's funny, you can say it. Mm. And aside from comedy without Trump, how have you seen or how do you anticipate perhaps new and different directions for comedy, and what may or may not be perceived as funny as a result of this pandemic and into the post-pandemic world? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, the only thing I can draw a comparison to would be 9-11. You know, there was a strange time during and right after 9-11 where when could comedians start talking about that? When could they start addressing that tragedy? Um, I think comics are always pushing buttons. Comics are always looking for ways to dissect society and society beliefs that will release some tension but also be funny. Um, so, look, joking about people dying during COVID-19, that is not funny. But um, talking about how divorce rates are up, that might be funny. <laughs> talking about how uh, every single... Uh, meeting on work is now on Skype and talking about how there's 50% more work meetings now than there were when we actually went to the office. So there are things to pull from. Uh, I can tell you one immediate thing I've had to do is I've had to try to be funny on social media. I was always very confident and um, content 
spending my comedy energy at the clubs every night doing stand-up comedy. Well, guess what? They don't exist right now, so I better mm. spend some of that time and energy working on my social media. Yeah. And any final word on your stand-up special and why audiences should tune in? Yeah, well, obviously I want people to tune in. I've been doing comedy for 15 years. This is my first one-hour stand-up special, and uh, I'm really proud of it. And I think you'll find as a viewer, it's very interesting to see a performance in Detroit, a performance in New York, and a performance in Los Angeles all in one-hour special. Mm. Okay, well, thank you so much for calling into our show, Michael Costa. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your poignant questions. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And Michael Costa's Detroit, New York, L.A. stand-up special is airing online at ComedyCentralCC.com. This is Carolyn Garcia, Mountain Girl. What a crew to drop into the middle of and you are listening to Arts Express. St. Stephen with a rose In and out of the garden he goes Country garden in the wind and the rain Wherever he goes the people all complain Stephen Osborne in his time Well he may and he may decline Did it matter does it now Stephen would answer if he only knew how And now on Arts Express. Ladies and gentlemen, San Francisco's own Miss Rusty Frank. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. I'm no dancer, but when I feel down, I enjoy scouring YouTube for tap dance videos. And my friend, Dennis Main, wrote me and said that since I like tap dancers so much, I just had to read Rusty Frank's book, Tap, where she interviews all the tap dancing legends. Well, I got the book, and for the last month, every morning with my coffee, I spent delightedly reading these primary source interviews with Bunny Briggs, Jimmy Slide, Hermes Pan, Shirley Temple, Ann Miller, uh, and so many more. Even though it's now over 30 years old, I doubt there's anything else like it. And I am so happy to have on the show today the author of the book, Tap, Rusty Frank. Hi, Rusty. Hi. I'm so happy to be here talking to someone who loves tap dancing. It's so enjoyable. And it's just great to hear these legends. What made you seek out these old hoofers? Oh, I actually started tap dancing when I was six years old because I saw a Shirley Temple movie. One day, my neighbor, Cindy Catlin, came home and she showed me a tap step from her tap lesson. I <laughs> ran into my house and said, Mom, I want to take tap dancing lessons. She found out about a school that was close by, and it was the Louis Dupron School of Dance. And this guy was just fantastic, such an incredible tap dancer. And suddenly I realized, oh my gosh, this guy. Louis Dupron, this random teacher that my mom found out of the phone book, was a legend. When you watch Donald O'Connor dance, for example, you're really watching Louis Dupron because Louis Dupron was his main uh. teacher. So um, one day I opened the paper to read the obituaries and there was Louis Dupron's name. Uh. And I thought, all those stories that Louis Dupron told me, they're all gone now. And then I had this flash like, oh my God, all the stories of all these dancers are going to be gone. And then I said, somebody needs to write a book about these people. <laughs> and then there was that moment. And all of us know that moment was like, you go gulp. You got tapped on the shoulder. No, <laughs> that's how it happened. And basically, I've got to capture these stories of these people. They're all in their 80s and 90s, that generation. And this was back in 87, 88. 
So in the end, it was just like the best time ever because I got to meet and become friends with many of these 30 legends that I picked out. Did you find the dancers were eager to tell their stories or did you have to draw them out? (laughs) Yes and no. So the no was tap dancers of that generation, for them, the fundamental issue was to hold on to their act, to not let anybody Mm -hmm. steal it. Mm -hmm. So by me asking, can I tell your story? This was this delicate dance, basically, to convince them that this would be a legacy and not something that I was stealing from them. Some people jumped right on it and others, like it took a a lot of trust building. And the neat thing was that because I had taken from Louis Dupron, that was the door that opened it for me. I see. What are the roots of tap dancing in America and what, what really gets it into the limelight? From my research and what my conclusions are that, first of all, tap is a uniquely American art form that came about through the meeting and meshing of various ethnic percussive dance forms. And that what we're talking about is Irish jigs, Scottish jigs, African step dancing, all these different forms of percussive foot dances that met in America. And primarily in this one area of New York called the Five Points District. Yeah. And that was where they, these communities were actually all living there at the same time. And they used to have cutting contests on street corners. And so then the venues for tap change over the year. Early in the 20th century, aside from uh, street corners and bars, then tap moves into vaudeville? Yes, big time. So tap is prominent in vaudeville, and you often would have more than one tap dancer on a bill. It's a joyful American art form. You know, the great thing about it is that as a tap dancer, you're two things, maybe more, but you're a musician by creating the, the rhythms with your feet the music Mm -hmm. at your feet, and then you're also a dancer. So it's thoroughly engaging. In vaudeville, you can spend decades polishing your eight minutes on stage. Yeah, and they would do the same act, exactly the same act for years, for years. I remember the Berry Brothers, and they the one I interviewed, Warren Berry, he told me that he would get ill, physically ill before he went on stage, because hearing that music again, He said it made him ill because he said he tried to convince his brothers, can we just change one song? Can we change one move? And they said, we can't. We talked to our agent and our agent said he will not be able to get us bookings if we change anything. And those few minutes could take them around the nation and around the world. Yes. And a lot of the venues were highly racialized, right? In a place like the Cotton Club, many of the acts could be black, but the audience was all white. Well, this was America, wasn't it, at that time? Yeah. Yeah, this was how things were. There was segregation. Now, this is something that is fascinating to me. There was a club in San Francisco called Forbidden City that was all Asian performers, but all white audience. Huh. So it wasn't just black and white, but it also affected the Asian American community. I think you had mentioned in the book a, a duo, uh, Wing and Toy. I may oh, be getting yeah. the names wrong. They were Bill Toy and Wing. And oh, I love them so much. And anybody who's listening to this, please just type in Toy and Wing dancers into YouTube and you'll see some wonderful clips of them. Were there any mixed race tap dance acts or was there that were, just but too they didn't get a lot of work, you know? My boyfriend, Bob Shearer, was a tap dancer, and he worked with Sammy Davis Jr. on a gig. And they hit it off so great that they talked about teaming up. And this would have been in the 50s. And they were so excited about this, and they talked about it. And then there was just this moment where they their excitement wore down as they realized it just the society wasn't ready. Wow. Yeah. Well, one of the great tap dancers you interviewed was a one-legged dancer named Peg Leg Bates. Peg Leg Bates. How did he do it? All these stories, Jack, you know, they're all about people with just gumption, not seeing an impediment, but just moving forward. And so his was that he lost his leg as a young boy. And he said, I was so young and dumb, I didn't realize it wasn't going to grow back. Oh, my God. And he said, so they just put a peg on him and he had already been dancing. So he just continued dancing and figured it out. When you have one foot with two taps and a peg, the peg only has one sound. So he had to reinvent every traditional tap step, like a time step or a shuffle off to Buffalo or the New Yorker. He had to reinvent them so that it would accommodate the three places he had.
but he was phenomenal. And you can also look him up on the YouTube. He's there. How did TAP adjust for the movie industry? Oh, for any student of movies, they know that when talkies came in, in the late 20s, as a popular mode of feature films, they basically just filmed Broadway shows as like uh-huh. stage shows. And then they started adapting the camera and the sound for tap dancing. And that was a little bit of a journey that was interesting. Uh, you have three different ways that actual tap sounds were gathered. The first uh-huh. one was they did it live. So they just recorded it live, which meant the dancer couldn't move around much. They had to stay in one general area because it would have been like a boom mic just hanging there, getting uh-huh. the sound, getting the audio. But then they, as of course, cinematography, they said, well, we want you to be dancing over there and then we'll have you move and travel over here. And so they were coming towards the camera and away from the camera. So they couldn't do that live audio. So they recorded the taps first and then the dancer had to match it while they were being filmed. And Fayard Nicholas told me, he said, that one was the worst. He said, we did all three ways, but that one was the worst because it was so hard to match exactly what you had recorded because uh-huh. it's so precise. He said, the best way was the final way. And that is we shot it. And then after they cut the film together, we'd go into the recording studio, the dubbing studio. They'd play the film for us and we'd put headsets on, had our tap shoes on. They would give us a quick track and then we would record the dance. A lot of the famous Hollywood dance directors like Busby Berkeley weren't actually dancers, were they? Right. There were some that weren't. And Busby Berkeley is a good example of it. But see, this was this wonderful phenomena of Hollywood was that the camera became part of the dance. So you had people like Busby Berkeley who use big groups of people to and the camera for movement. And then you have people like Fred Astaire and noted, most importantly, as far as I'm concerned, for making sure that the camera was locked head to toe. Because this was a big deal when musicals started becoming big in film. The director said, oh, we can do a close-up on the feet and then a close-up on the hands and then a close-up on an audience member. In other words, cutaways. And Fred Astaire saw that in one of his first films, which was Flying Down to Rio. That was his second film. But the first time he said, nope, that is not going to happen again. So he actually put it in his contract that the camera stayed on him head to toe with as few cuts as possible and no cutaways. We have to thank Fred Astaire, everybody. Thank him, thank him, because we get to watch (laughs) dance. Since the dance directors didn't always dance, that's where people like your teacher, Louis Dupron, comes in, right? Yeah. Most of the great dancers that we see on film, like Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly and so on, they all had assistant choreographers, people they worked Uh with, collaborators. How did Tap cope with the new rhythms of the new bebop jazz blown by Charlie Parker and oh, Joe Coltrane? Uh, this is one of my favorite stories and because I started getting intrigued by this. Music changes, right? In America, music changed from the 1920s to the 1930s, 40s, 50s. It just keeps changing, right? Who made those changes? Who was it? Was it the bands? If it was the bands, what instrument was it? If it was... Mm-hmm. The dancers, which dancers? Well, I spoke with so many people who contended it was the tap dancers that kept moving forward musical changes. Because yeah. back in the in the teens and twenties, what we would call the rhythm sections, right? Piano, bass, drums, guitar, they were listening. They were in the pit. And the dancers, the tap dancers were on stage and they were following what the tap dancer was doing. So all these drummers are hearing these rhythms. Wow, listen to what that tap dancer is doing listen to that. And then they would start copying it. I started interviewing some drummers and they all said, absolutely, no doubt about it. You don't even have to ask another question about this. Yes. It was the tap dancers we were listening to and they were pushing forward the music. So you have all these tap dancers, you know, you have Brenda Buffalino, you have Teddy Hale, and then you have baby Lawrence and Teddy Hale who bebop it. And then you have Gregory Hines and Maurice Hines. Well, Gregory, they move it forward to funk. And then you have a Sabian Glover and, and so on. It just keeps moving, moving. It's rhythm. It's rhythm. You can just keep playing with it. You know, I got to meet people. I can't believe I got to meet them and become friends with them. And some of them, I started tap dancing with them. I tap danced with the Nicholas Brothers in shows. I, I produced a show called Jazz Tap okay. and I got to hire them oh. and perform on stage oh. with them for a solid week. Wow. <laughs> you know, that's nuts. And Jenny Lagon was in that show. And Savion was just a young teenager. He was in the show. And Arthur Duncan it was amazing. 
Rashdi, I I wondered if you could maybe give us a little virtual mini tap lesson. I mean, if I were to walk into my first tap dancing lesson, what would it be like? What would what would happen yeah. first? Okay, well, let's say you got to have tap shoes and everything. So okay, you've got these tap shoes on. You've laced them up. They're on your feet. Yeah, you have a big massive tap in uh-huh. a, a mixture of different alloys, a little bit of aluminum and stuff, and it's screwed into the bottom of your shoe. One is on your heel. And it covers Uh the whole heel of your shoe. And then one Uh just as big as that, and maybe a little bit bigger, that goes across the front on the bottom of your shoe, like three inches long and wide. And then what you do is you, let's say you want to tap your toe. So you just tap, 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 tap your foot on the ground, and that will make one sound. And then you can clunk your heel. You just drop your heel, go clunk, clunk, clunk. And that's the other sound you can make. So those are your two plates. So then if you wanted to make a sound that's called a shuffle, you would only use the toe tap, not the heel one, just the toe. And you would swing your foot forward and that will make a little tap sound. And then you swing it backwards and it makes a little tap sound. So you have click, click. And then if you do that, you can even do that sound, which is called a shuffle. It's two sounds. You can do it in different rhythms. You can go dun, dun, or you can go da, dum. If you want to even put on my tap shoes and you could have some recordings of these. Yes, I'd love that. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe you can answer better when you have your taps on. I wanted to know what is a time step and what's a buck and wing? Oh, okay. A time step is an actual step. And it was used back in the vaudeville days to set the tempo for the orchestra. Because in vaudeville, basically, you would be traveling from theater to theater to theater. Usually uh-huh. you'd perform one week at a theater and then move to another one. And then you'd get on stage and you would start your act with a time step to set the tempo. Because for tap dancing, I want to tell you that tempo can kill you. If the conductor counts it off too fast, it's deadly. If they count it off too slow, it's deadly (laughs) for a Mm. tap dancer. It's got to be just right. So, yeah. And the buck and wing is more of a style. It's a little bit heavier footed. If you see early clips of Ruby Keeler, for example, 42nd Street, that's a really good example of buck and wing. And that style was basically important because in the early days of theater, there was no amplification. So you had to hit the floor loud to be heard. And so she even had the soles of her shoes were not the metal taps. They were wood, wood wood-soled shoes. And that's what Bill Robinson used as well. So I've got probably 20 pair of tap shoes over in the corner. And I'm going to choose a pair of white Capizio tap shoes. K360s. A lot of people like that shoe. When I was growing up, that's what Louis Dupron wore. So that's what I wore. You always have to tie your tap shoes because you don't want them loose. Okay. All right. So I'm going to warm up a little bit. Okay. (laughs) Okay. There's a little warm up. Well, first I'll do those little taps. So if I tap just the toe tap, That's the toe tap. Now here's the heel tap and listen to how it's a little deeper sound. Okay. And then you have the shuffle, which is just the toe tap going forward and then back like that. But then you can change the tempo of it and make it snap. And then if I put in a heel and then I can add a dig on the other foot, that's a dig. I'm digging the heel into the ground. So now I get this lovely step that Louis Dupron taught me. Oh, oh, Jack, I missed a tap. Could you hear it? <laughs> no. First. But... Here's one. This one's called, uh, we think of it like a, a paddle and roll or a train. It sounds like a train. So I'm going to go dig where I dig my heel into the ground, and then I'm going to brush back and then put the foot down and then the heel down. So. It's going to go dig, brush, toe, heel, dig, brush, toe. I missed four taps. <laughs> I remember when I was doing shows, I was doing musicals, I'd come off stage practically in tears. I missed a tap. And I was convinced that everybody could hear that one tap I missed out of the 1,000 taps. <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, a time step. Okay. I'll do a real basic one. And interesting about time steps, 
is they all begin on an upbeat rather than a downbeat. Five, six, five, six, seven, eight. And then there's other time steps. So that was a basic one. That would even be called a buck time step, maybe. And then a traveling. There you go. You couldn't see me, but I was traveling back. Yeah. Oh, that's great. There you go. It's fun. Well, I'm smiling. I got a huge <laughs> smile on my face now. <laughs> well, me too. <laughs> it's just a fantastic book. I mean, even the appendices are amazing with yeah. discographies and filmographies and lists of all the dances yeah. from the first half of the 20th century. Where can people get the book and oh, learn yeah, more? They can about get it? it directly from me and I can autograph mm-hmm. it for them if they'd like. Oh, how wonderful. So I have an online store. They can just Type in rustyfrank.com. That's easy. Rusty Frank. It's my name. But oh, yeah, I just, I think if I have any last words, everybody stay happy, stay healthy, keep moving. If it's tapping or walking or whatever brings you joy. Well, thanks so much. I've been talking with dancer and author of Tap, Rusty Frank. Thanks, Rusty. Oh, this was fun. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the global television beat, continuing his best and worst small screen picks of 2020 out of watching 140 of them so you don't have to. Connected to Balzac, Zola, and post-Thatcher Britain, how, quote, our lives are threatened by our devices and the companies that wield them for profit, and African Americans front and center, shattering the cultural apartheid of popular entertainment, while also highlighting literal apartheid. This is Bro on the global television beat, Breaking Glass. The Year of Living Digitally, 2020 Top Global TV Series. Biohackers, Netflix series hatched in the wilds of Bavaria that takes us inside the corporate university world of genetic engineering. The heroine is a young student, herself the victim of this biological tampering, who enlists her fellow students as part of a do-it-yourself biotechnology movement, all to thwart the efforts of their unethical professor who experiments on human tissue a modern Dr. Mengele in a pantsuit. Lovecraft Country, backed with Underground. The first is a contemporary HBO series that expands the horror, science fiction, and fantasy genres, putting African Americans front and center in a successful attempt to shatter the cultural apartheid which surrounds American popular entertainment, while also highlighting the literal apartheid of the 50s in defining the country as a police state patrolling racial boundaries. The second, a former series by the same showrunner Misha Green, The Discovery of the Year, tracks the Macon Seven as they escape Southern slavery in season one, and as they and their Northern abolitionist allies become radicalized as they come into contact with John Brown in season two, the antidote to the ludicrous Brown portrayal in Good Lord Bird. Mystery Road, Aaron Peterson's Aboriginal detective, travels the Australian North in season two in search of the nest of a viperous crystal meth gang growing rich off infecting the indigenous who are scattered along this road. Peterson's stolid and stoic doggedness as he upsets the still colonial Anglo power structure of the region remains rooted in his connection with his people who continue to cling to their way of life in a region that now is becoming a center of Anglo flight from the continent's overpopulated cities. Small Acts, videographer, artist, and filmmaker Steve McQueen's outrageously ambitious miniseries of episodes that collectively map the progression of Caribbean peoples of the Windrush generation, imported into Britain post-World War II to help rebuild the country, but who were discriminated against then and now. A truly Balzacian and Zola-esque project, whose equivalent in literature is Walter Mosley's Easy Rollins novels about black Los Angeles. The series tracks Caribbean life and culture in a racist Britain in its bars and mangrove, house parties in Lover's Rock, interaction with the police in Red, White, and Blue, in prisons, Alex Weedy, and schools in education. 
Music is crucial to this evolution, and the subtlest and slyest episode is the two-hour house party that is Lover's Rock, with its extended takes of women on the dance floor carving out their place in reggae, and the crowd going wild over kung fu fighting. Next, in this year of both U.S. and European questioning of the unrestrained power of the technological industry, this series about a master computer gone berserk and waging war on a planet of utterly interconnected devices was a breakthrough into relevance for U.S. network TV. Next, some of the ghost of series past, particularly Fringe, and its warning of how our lives are threatened by our devices and the companies that wield them for profit. Fox, sensing the series was groundbreaking, canceled it after two episodes, but will allow the remaining eight episodes to be shown. Big Sky. David E. Kelly's correction to his own scurrilous adoration of the rich that was the undoing. This ABC series brought female agency to that most rightfully maligned of male misogynist genres, the serial killer epic. As, after a shocking resolution in episode one, male energy gives way to cross-racial, cross-class female agency. And here are ten honorable mentions. Late Night with Seth Meyers and The Daily Show. As Trumpism gives way to Biden's new normal in the midst of a pandemic and an economic collapse, these two series, the cream of the crop of a heightened satirical late-night impulse, couldn't be more relevant. Seth Meyers and Amber Ruffin's faux trailer for White Savior was NBC must-see TV. And The Daily Show's group of correspondents, Desi Lydic, Roy Wood Jr., and Jordan Klepper, made this show shine. All clips are available on YouTube. Alfred Hitchcock presents Retro Series of the Year with Hitch directing three of these brilliant and only slightly veiled critiques of the vacuousness and greed of 50s America. Lamb to the Slaughter, Breakdown, and Poison, all available on YouTube. Taken Down, Irish series that illuminates and undercuts the miracle of the the Celtic tiger by viewing it from the vantage point of immigrants, abused and exploited as Irish society becomes consumed in a wanton greed and a need to appropriate the lifestyle of Dublin's elite. Stargirl. Best of Greg Berlanti and the DC Universe was this under-the-radar revival of the Justice Society of America as seen through the eyes of a female teen whose superpowers take second place to her bonding with her nerdy but affectionate stepfather. Far more touching and affecting than the polyglot overpopulated superhero epic that was Crisis on Multiple Earths. Bob Hart's Abishola. Season two of this Chuck Lorre series about the later-in-life touching romance of a Detroit Anglo sock merchant and a Nigerian nurse centers around the tensions involved in Bob and Abishola's marriage while exploring the cynically hilarious takes of Abishola's African-American and Nigerian co-workers. The Mandalorian. Best Star Wars iteration since the original trilogy. This space western boasted a second season full of surprises, but which by season's end, because of its patterned folding into the mythology of the original, was in danger of losing its own originality. Jack Irish. Guy Pierce in this Aussie detective series that spotlights local tavern and racing culture of Melbourne's Fitzroy district, as well as the corporate greed of, again, a pharmaceutical company experimenting on immigrants. Funniest moment is the private eye when asked if he always lived in Fitzroy, explaining that he briefly moved to North Fitzroy, but that was too much, and he quickly moved back. The Connors Superstore. Two series which this year highlighted the plight of workers during the first phase of COVID. Most dramatically, the Connors, having failed to secure work during the epidemic, face eviction in the pilot of their new season. Meanwhile, the diverse labor force of the Walmart-style superstore, in a pilot that tracks the disease from March to July, face a corporate headquarters long on praise for its frontline workers but short on masks to protect them. Don't forget the driver. Toby Jones is a set-upon bus driver in a languishing seaside British town given new life through his encounter with the hopefulness of an African female teen, an illegal stowaway on his boss. Jones is a master of understatement and his frustrated takes as he deals with a deteriorating working-class lifestyle in post-Thatcher Britain make him the poor man's Bob Newhart. RT. Three shows highlight the Russian network's position as clearinghouse for left and progressive reporting and commentary. Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp as Rye commentator on weekly events, Renegade Inc. with filmmaker Ross Ashcroft interviewing a different iconoclastic thinker each episode, and the old reliable George Galloway reimagined as left-wing shock jock in the mother of all talk shows. Five Worst Series Hunters 
Reducing the Holocaust to a superhero cartoon is trivializing enough, but then to add Al Pacino's overbloated Dr. X in, as usual, a hammy star turn, put this Amazon series over the top, that is, beyond redemption. The Stranger, Harlan Corbin BBC nonsense, which teases as being a critique of bourgeois false morality, and then at the last moment, oh so predictably, seals back up the nuclear family tensions it initially purported to expose. Hashtag Black AF. Kenya Blackish Barris. Barris's transmuting of black radical experience into a curb your enthusiasm type curmudgeonly grumbling. The street argo meaning of the title, Black as F, is instead here simply an excuse to wallow in black affluence, the real meaning of the series. Wild District. Netflix series from Colombia that features a racist depiction of Bogota's inner city as a jungle and rationalizes the right-wing refusal to negotiate peace as a valiant fight against guerrilla terrorists who themselves are suing to be recognized as a political party and legitimately debate ideas the right is terrifying of acknowledging. Brockmeyer, season four of this decently interesting series about an alcoholic baseball announcer and his struggle to face up to his team owner girlfriend and the boy who he has tacitly adopted, abandons both of these characters and instead opts for the entirely unplausible promotion of Brockmeyer as commissioner of baseball. Unlike other shows like Weeds, where blowing up the series gives it new life, this explosion demolished the series and illustrated the problem with bringing back, because commercially profitable, shows which have reached their narrative peak. This is Bro, on the global television beat, Breaking Glass. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out, they do it every time. Just let it be The world won't get no better We gotta change it now Just you and me